Hey guys, welcome into another episode of From the Wing. I am Christian Clark, the Pelicans beat writer for NOLA.com and The Advocate. The New Orleans Pelicans. The New Orleans basketball Pelicans won a New Orleans Pelicans basketball game. For the first time in 21 days, the Pelicans banked a win. They beat the Los Angeles Lakers at home. Comeback win. They ended a 10-game losing streak. I think I got my swagger back. Dude, I forgot what this is like. I forgot what victory is like. Uh, I was already like preparing silver linings in my head of like, how do I get out of here? Like, be eyes cooking. Like, uh, that's how I'll that's how I'll salvage this. I'll just tell myself that bi looks good, and and then that'll be how I escape this. And then a whole bunch of wild shit happened. The last 10 games, even beyond the last 10 games, this la- this little run, the month of January, felt like a toxic relationship where like I was starting to get to a point where this this thing that I loved was like just, you know, started off mildly abusing me and then was like full scale toxic relationship. You you might need to get out of here and then they win this game. And now I'm sitting here just like, I can love you like that. It's, it's back. It's all back. I, you know, oh, God, everything was good. Dude, there are some moments in that game that I, like I've just been dying for. We haven't had them in forever. Um, you know, I was we were w- probably like one podcast away from me getting on Trey Murphy about a lack of aggression in when he chose to fire that shot when he saw a closeout you know a lot of the season any closeout could get him off the ball get him off the three-point line and that was a struggle for me because he's such a weapon or can be such a weapon and I have to say not just this game but like the last three games his takes are much more aggressive he is shooting on hard closeouts he is shooting with hands in his face he is dribble. He's dribble pull ups, transition pull ups, side steps. He has done a lot more of the shooting that gets you respected across the league. That really makes you not just somebody that punishes space, but somebody that people fear on a night in night out basis. And yeah, uh, awesome stuff. That sequence, the the double logo pull ups, the first one. The you know the transition take the defense is still falling back. The second one was just like you gave me airspace again. Here's an f bomb, bam. Yeah, I mean, arguably one of the biggest plays of the game was the ridiculous Herb steal. He rotates over. It looks like it's going to go out of bounds. He throws it back in. Trey gets the ball in transition. Pops that one from the logo. Boom. I mean, it was it was back to back logo threes from Trey Murphy. They badly needed his outside shooting. This game reminded me a little bit of that Lakers game at home last year in March where the Pelicans were down 20 points at halftime and they came back and won. It wasn't it wasn't quite as bad this time around. I think it was 11 points at halftime on Saturday night. Um, but yeah, I got a little bit of a, a similar feeling. I mean, Trey Murphy had a big second half in both of those games. Um, I mean, look, this was Brandon Ingram finally for the first time in weeks, months even, looking like Brandon Ingram, you know, like the guy we saw to end last year. And this was the role players looking like the version of themselves we saw early in the season. Yeah, it's 
it's nice how how quickly like things slide back into alignment with the role players when your star looks like your star. You yeah. know, when he when he looks like that and carries that weight, all of a sudden guys are slid back into the roles they really do play and they excelled in them. That it it looked like everything we remembered from from Trey, from Jose, you know, huge shout out to Larry Nance in that in the end of the third and beginning of the and all the way through the fourth quarter, Jonas goes out and Larry, you know, he is at a rebounding disadvantage dealing with AD and LeBron. He is he is at a disadvantage. And that man went on a mission to make AD's life hell. And anybody who was going to get a rebound was getting his ass in their gut one way or the other, whether he got the rebound or not. I mean, that man just went to war. And, you know, it's not stuff that's going to show up a ton in the stat sheets and everything, but like he, he truly battled. And I think like Jonas had a, had a double double cooking before the injury. And hopefully, you know, there's reports that he was looking okay and joking around in the locker room. It wasn't in like a boot or on crutches or anything. So hopefully, hopefully that is a, a decent indication that this isn't some long-term worrisome thing. Yeah. But, I mean, uh, Jonas Valanciunas doesn't believe in a boot and crutches as a concept. So. Yeah. So like, what do we know? Like he may just be Lithuanian. Like he, this may just be, you know, he might just rub some Crisco on it and call it a day. Um, but even though he had a double double, like I, I think part of the reason that AD was really getting off was they were doing so much movement stuff, and it's just it's hard to to deal with AD driving the baseline and hunting lobs and stuff. Like that's that's the kind of stuff they were going for. AD was picking up a lot of like twelve and fifteen footers and just taking them, kind of being left open because we weren't coming away from the rim. And I think that changed when it became. Nance versus AD. I think they they stopped getting those looks the same way, uh, and it helped a lot. But anyway, um, all those scoop layups from Jose, you needed every one of them. You know, he he got to the line a couple times in big moments. That two for one, um, that two for one situation where he gets to the line, you know, had that I had that moment of despair when I felt like things might go real bad when Pat Bev tried to throw a lob, I guess, to LeBron, and he barely threw it over the rim, and somehow it clanked home and just went in. Like I I thought I, that felt like doom. And no doom. No doom. Victory. So I I think there's a lot of different directions we can go. Let's, let's stay on Ingram for a, a moment because I think that was the biggest takeaway of this game, his 35 points and 15 of 28 shooting. Did that without a single three-pointer. Um, he, this was exclusively Brandon Ingram from the mid range and making some shots at the rim. And, and this was, a, I mean, he had that dunk, but like, this was a heavy Brandon Ingram is a mid range assassin game. Um, and you know, I think one of the things I'm going to be interested to see when, when Zion Williams come, when Zion Williamson comes back, is he willing to get some more of those threes up? But for now, you know, I mean, kind of by, by any means necessary, it was interesting. I, I had someone text me. I saw a tweet too uh, from, from I think Mason Ginsburg that Jeff Van Gundy was talking about the lack of threes that Ingram takes, and that was one reason why he and Zion don't fit together. Um, you know, I wonder where Jeff is hearing that from. Could it be his brother? Uh, but anyway, the man, the man who commanded a volume increase and received said volume increase. Yeah, uh, that would be my guess. Um, and Jeff Van Gundy is a very smart basketball mind. He 
definitely right. can form his own thoughts too. Um, but anyways, Brandon Ingram was really, really good. And uh, thank God. Thank God, Adam. <laughs> oh, I mean, it, it has been 84 years <laughs> since I've seen a game like that from Brandon Ingram. It's been 10,000 years. It's been 84 years. Uh, it look, it's the the cool thing about this like we watched these last these last two games BI played and he tried to go to those same spots and the makes just weren't happening. He was getting there a little slow. Uh didn't look as fluid. In this game, he went to all those same spots like these these little baseline like uh, this uh this uh I'm trying to come up with a cute way to say like uh filet of Kobe Bryant beef uh that is his shot selection in the mid-range like it's it's very very reminiscent like it looks like you know where he got it from uh there's a really awesome clip video where they it's just a cut of him and Kobe taking the exact same shots and their body profile looks exactly the same it was all that stuff it was spinning into a baseline a baseline fall away it just stuff that guys don't make that basically only him and DeMar DeRozan and Jimmy Butler make that yeah. like nobody makes those shots and those that, that edit was amazing that edit was amazing if i if my memory serves me correctly i believe it was a chinese nba fan who put that one together it's it's disgusting it's disgusting how identical the shots were um but that's that's what it was it was just a clinic of all the same spots and i have to say like he he took advantage. He was able to take advantage. Unlike some people, he was able to take advantage of the fact that LeBron James wanted nothing to do with actually defending anybody that was going to the rim. He saw LeBron trying to take a charge sidestep, laid the ball off for JV dunks home. Like it was also really, really nice to see some of those wildly easy buckets because BI saw double teams and triple teams and help defense. And he either split it and passed or he drove to the rim and passed like or he just shot it in their face. Like he just he killed them. They put Pat Bev on him a hundred times and it didn't go well. They put other people on him. It didn't really matter who it was. They didn't have an answer. There's not a uh there's not a wing on that team that could do a damn thing with Brandon Ingram. Yeah, look, like during the the 10 game losing streak, the offense was the biggest problem and it and it really was not close. I mean, if like you can go and look at the offensive efficiency numbers and the Pelicans were dead last over that 10 game stretch and they were dead last by a lot. Like they were at like 105 points per hundred possessions. The next closest team was like 108, 109. Like it was a gulf between 30 where the Pelicans were and 29 where the next closest team was. I think obviously most of that is just, you played the majority of those, all those games without Zion, the majority of them without Brandon Ingram. But I mean, do you think there were other issues besides that. Like, do you think the coaching staff could have put the guys they had in, in better positions? I mean, just when I see that, that not only were they last in that stretch, but they're last by so much. I have to say like, that makes me think like, I mean, look, I know you're in a terrible, terrible spot, but like, is there other stuff they could be doing? So I think like you start off by saying, any team in the NBA stripped of their two best scorers and two star players is going to look like dog shit. Um, I, I think you could say that about most teams because it asks a lot of people that are not that versatile in terms of their skill set. Are there things we could have done differently? Sure. There's plenty of debate about 
you know, how much more they could have leaned on Jonas. We've talked about that a little bit. Like you could have been pounding the paint with that guy. And we've talked about that in a few episodes that like Willie just looks at defensive matchups and it seems like sometimes JV's just not going to be the guy because they're going to run, they're going to want to switch. And even if he does have a potential positive matchup on the offensive end, it's a negative on the defensive end. So he's just not going to get a look. Yeah, and, and to uh, that, like I thought Dallas specifically, the offense looked terrible for most of the game, especially in the first half. They started Dwight Powell at center. They did not have Christian Wood active. Did you know no JaVale McGee? Like that was a game where it's like, okay, we don't really have it going. Um, like why not pound the ball into JV and play through him and get something going that way? And they didn't even do that in the Dallas game to me. Right. So there there's that and the fact that like, you know. I would love to say that they're, you know, maybe you exaggerate the three point volume that you ask from guys because of the scoring gap that you're trying to make up with the guys that are missing. So maybe you change a little bit of the framework of your shot selection, but I don't think you can really, I don't think you can really do that. I think all you can do is like CJ clearly put that on his back and was like, I need to take more of these. I'm going to have to carry more of the load. And he tried to do that. Could they have done more to create looks for Trey Murphy? Sure. I think we'd have had a problem anyway, because like I said just a little while ago, Trey before the last three games, if he was wide open, he was you know firing all day. If he saw a close a closeout coming, he was already making a decision to get off the line or get off the ball. So I don't I don't know where more volume would have come from. So the JV thing I think is totally uh, totally understandable. Um, I, I'm going to have a question about that all year, about whether or not, you know, I know we we seem over the last two years to let defensive matchups decide our offensive tactics. And I'm I'm okay with that. I understand that that's how, kind of how Willie does things. I struggle with it when you, when you know there's an offensive issue and you know that there's like a steady – like 25 to 28 points just sitting there in the paint waiting to be had from that guy. And look, I'll also say Jonas isn't having as good a season this year as he had last year. Like he's got a lot of silly cheap fouls, a lot of dumb screens. He's missed a lot of shots and had a lot of like weird chicken wing issues with rebound clearouts and stuff like that. It hasn't been incredible. Um but clearly there have been opportunities. Like Dwight Powell was an opportunity and we didn't do it. And I think a lot of that had to do with the fact that if you look at that game, like look at when Luca got himself in JV's face, it went real bad all the time. But like, it's one of those things that you hear guys talk about all the time when you're playing against a Luca or a KD or something like that. Like you kind of just have to make a choice. They're going to scorch you either way. So either you decide to guard the role players and make him beat you alone or you throw everything you have at him and you dare everybody else. You kind of have to pick one. Like Luca's going to fry you no matter what. He fries everybody. He's just that is what he is. So at some point, stare in the face of of what your, you know, your instincts telling you and say, "You know what? I just I got to let JV have some run." And I think, you know, that's going to remain a question un- unless the roster changes. Yeah, I mean, like the the first half of this game you know, the Lakers put up 72 points and you could have looked at that and went, wow, that was terrible defense. And it, it was not good defense. Like the transition defense was clearly bad, but I felt like a lot of it was bad offense, like leading to easy looks for the Lakers too. Like they are 
they are interconnected, right? They're not, there's not just one end and it's completely separate from the other end. Like they, they affect each other. And I thought this first half one is an example of that. Like Pelican shot two of 13 from three. It felt like a constant string of Lakers run outs, transition buckets. And that was how the Lakers built that first half lead. And, you know, the Pelicans, their scores did their thing in the second half. They made more threes, Trey Murphy. Thank God. Um, but it's just it just looks so hard on offense for the Pelicans. And even without Zion, you know, like especially going forward, you know, until the all-star break, they've just got to figure out a way to get the offense in a healthier place. And hopefully this this second half against the Lakers was a step toward doing that. Yeah, I mean, I, I can't complain about anything I saw in the second half from from a an offensive standpoint. Um they played within themselves. The guys that needed to get out and transition and really push did. The the thing I was most afraid of is like, we're at the point where Herb is getting guarded like Rajon Rondo in the worst of it. There, I mean, LeBron and everybody who was assigned to defend him were just 20 feet off him, just yeah. leaving him on the three-point line. They're in the paint. They're daring you. Toward the end of the game, we finally did something about that. Herb started getting involved with CJ and a lot of DHOs over and over again. And it, like, if they're going to leave you wide open, you need to do something with it. And if you can't make that perimeter shot, which I don't think anybody or Herb trusts him to make that right now, then um, even though like the last couple of games he's actually made a few, you got to come bring somebody in and and use that space for something. If they're going to lay off you like that, at least create a touch, create a way to get the ball back in somebody else's hands or create an option for you to potentially drive to the rim off of, off of that handoff, you know, like you create something else, this standing aside on the three point line, isn't going to work. Herb has some skill on the ball, has the ability to to manipulate the paint a little bit. He's got to get downhill or has to get some some actions running when he gets left that much space and he started to do that and i think it helped a lot here's how how you know the pelicans really wanted to win this game uh they essentially played an eight-man rotation kyra lewis jr was in there for about six minutes if you don't count him the pelicans played eight guys in this game willie billy hernan gomez did not play Devontae graham did not play jackson hayes did not play uh, so this was Willie shortening that rotation up. And I mean, they needed to win. I, I understand why he did that. I'm wondering if we're going to see Jax or Devante in there in any non-garbage time minutes before Thursday. Um, but that is a different topic. And we'll, we'll have plenty of time to talk about that this week. What could, uh, what, could, what could that indicate? Could that indicate something to you, Christian? Maybe. maybe, would that, maybe. Would the, are the streets Are the streets a buzz? One other thing from this game. Oh my God, there was so much national media there. The national media is thirsting for LeBron James to break the all-time scoring record. Um, that was like almost like as many national media members as I've ever seen at the Blender, including playoff games. Um, kind of a, a funny anecdote for you. I heard that Lisa Salters was trying to get a bunch of Pelicans pregame on, oh, LeBron, like, you know, like, what if he breaks the record? What does it mean to you? And she was not having a lot of luck from what I was told. Uh, Zion Williamson, I don't think we really wanted to talk about it before the game. I don't think Brandon Ingram wanted to really talk about it before the game. Uh, I don't know if Lisa Salters is aware of this, but 
LeBron James basically had Brandon Ingram exiled from Los Angeles, traded him. Lisa, we don't like the Lakers. Crucial the context. Lakers don't like us. Crucial context. Like, they like it's that context, the AD context, the fact that Pat Bev plays for them. Like, it just there's a million reasons that the Pelicans do not like the Lakers. I feel it like is. I have to apologize for saying Liking I like Pat, Pat Bev. Bev a yeah, you weeks do. Ago. You do. You, oh, and by the way, if you like Dylan Brooks, get him the hell out of here too. All those try whore guards oh, that you man. love, get them the fuck <laughs> out of here. They're, what the hell? We got nut shots, Pat Bev, every time. It's, it's the, you can't enjoy watching him play because every time he fouls somebody, immediately loses his mind as if he is LeBron, as if he has been wronged and is going to cause referees sleepless nights because he just ripped through a guy's arm. It's like, I I didn't didn't do anything. I I loathe his existence. He is not a basketball player. He does not play basketball. I, I, I watch him on a nightly basis and he does not look like other basketball players. I'm just, I'm done with the fake, the try hard faux toughness shit. I get that the Minnesota thing worked and he like toughened them up a little bit and that's great. And that was like a one-time deal that and the Clippers thing were fine, but like the Houston guy, definitely the Lakers guy. I'm just, I'm done, man. I'm so tired. I'm just so tired of, of the garbage. Also, I'm not going to do a referee rant, but I was ready because the first half the the LeBron charge where he comes out of the out of the restricted area and doesn't even get both feet out, his body's turned sideways, and that's called a charge. I I just immediately just tweeted out the LeBron quote. I don't see this happening to anybody else because it just bad calls only happen to Lakers. I don't know if you heard this, even though uh, you know uh, your your friend and mine, uh, at least on an emotional level, Tom Haberstroh did a. A, a data pileup of referee quality based on team. And you know who shakes out as the best refereed team in the entire NBA? It's the Lakers. So, you know, it's it just that I hate these people. I hate. I think so it was the Nuggets them. who have gotten screwed the most by last two minute calls against them. I believe that's that's probably accurate because the theme of Tom's data was that the best referees get assigned to ca- to games that are on cable. If you end up on ABC or ESPN, you, and honestly, understandably so, you get a better set of referees because they want that TV product to be great. So you get a Scott Foster rather than, you know, whoever the hell, TJ Ford or whatever. Um, you get a, usually get a higher quality, more experienced ref. We also have a lot more young refs in the league now, and it's just some trial by fire stuff is happening right now. But the Lakers are on TV a whole hell of a lot. So they get a lot of those really good refs. And, you know, that that uh, foul at the end of the Celtics game the other day, it was a really bad miss. Like, we all know. We all saw it. Nobody's debating it. Even the most stringent Lakers hater isn't like, oh, that wasn't a foul. Um, but this was brutal. A lot of this game was brutal. And it's, it's hard enough when, like, stuff's not working. And you're in a 10 game losing streak. When you come in here and everything's going against you, like they're getting the 50 50 balls. Like we even talk about that offensive rebounds and 50 50 balls. Jesus Christ for three quarters. 
everything went the Lakers way. It felt like doom. And then, you know, just kind of got her shit together. Everybody, everybody came out there, felt like last year all over again. Got that, got that pep in your step. People started believing. I mean, I don't, I'm a tough debate. What's my favorite play from the game? I don't know. Is it the the second Trey logo three? Because that was just, I have air and how dare you? Or was it the the ice in veins Jose three, which I couldn't tell. Did CJ's hand deflect the inbound or did Jose just catch it? So you're talking about the at the sequence at the end of the third quarter, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I, I couldn't tell who deflected it, but but you're right. I mean, that was hugely important. I mean, the Pelicans were down by eight points. CJ hits this floater with like seven seconds left. Pelicans steal the inbounds pass, and, and Jose hits that three, and boom. It's gone down from eight to three points like that, and it's only a three-point deficit going into the fourth quarter. Like that was, that was a hugely important sequence. I mean, who knows if they win that game without that. Right. I, I'm pretty sure it looked like CJ probably got a fingertip on it because I can't I can't imagine the inbound was thrown directly to Jose. And it looks like it goes directly to him. It looks like CJ stabs at it and it touches the tip of his fingers and maybe that forces it left a little bit and Jose catches it in stride. The worst thing you could do with Jose Alvarado is give him a big moment and have him catch it in rhythm. Cause for I, I don't there's no way to 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 find that stat. Shoots a hundred percent. Jose has been so good this year, man. I mean, I I feel like you know he came out came out of the gate shooting really really well from three, and there was like you know he's he's getting a lot of this love nationally. It was kind of a a carryover from the end of last season, and I felt like you know he he slowed down a little bit with the shooting, and I still think he's been very impactful on defense. But I really believe if you made like two all NBA teams of just subs, like. Would would Jose Alvarado be in your second team All NBA subs or something like that? Like I think You're I really think he has a case is like one of the most valuable, like 10, 15 valuable substitute players in, in all of the NBA. And I think like some of the advanced stuff bears that out too. I mean, not only is he like lead the team in steals, high up there in deflections, like good assist to turnover guy, but like very good uh advanced stats guy this year too. So if you made like an all sixth men of the year, does he make the team? I think yes. There was a part there was a point early in the season where he felt like the best player coming off of the bench for anybody. Like that's how good he was playing to start the year when he was shooting lights out. And I think there's an interesting thing here because I, no matter what happens, no matter how well he's shooting, I think, you know, Willie kind of sticks to what he believes. I think there's a lot of a lot of pressure or expectation when somebody is playing really well to bu- just bump up their minutes and put them in more situations. And I think with Jose, like part of the the biggest thing about him that is so good, he is entirely he is both completely self aware and completely unafraid. So he's completely aware of what his role is and what he is capable of and what he can't do. And if you dare him to do something he knows he can do, his skill level just excels through the roof. I think there any temptation to play him like 30 plus minutes on a regular basis, like turning it, trying to turn him into Fred Van Vliet at this point would have been a mistake. I think part of the reason that he does feast is because of who he's attacking most of the time. And then I think 
you really the the important place where he gets tried out is when you get him in there in like closing situations. But one of the problems I had with him closing next to CJ previously, aside from the fact that like defensively that's a, kind of a bad backcourt, was C, uh, Jose loses a little bit of his shine to me in the game, and I think the reason that he's so good as a backup when things go through him, he's a different player. When he's the one moving the ball and manipulating space, he is a different guy. When he's just kind of floating around and he's just kind of a like a perimeter spacing guy and he's just doing handoffs and stuff, I don't love it as much. And I think we got into a lot of that like during this time period when we were trying to, you know, just carry the team through the sludge without Zion and BI. Naturally, CJ was carrying the team a lot and doing a ton of ISO stuff. And I was sitting there like, just put Dyson in or Trace, somebody that's not Jose, because if if on offense, if you're not having him touch the ball, I don't really want him as just like just a spacer. You know, that's not really what he does. Um, but man, he was good tonight. Like, I don't know of many people in the entire league. Like, he's I immediately Tyus Jones comes to mind as like small guy that's carved out this career. And like we, I was comparing him to JJ Barea before. Like, I don't know what the right comp's going to be, but the intelligence to know when he's got these major height disadvantages, when to go early, when to go high off the glass, when to dribble under them and and spin a center around and come back and attack the rim again, when to find somebody in those moments. He's just really, really intelligent with the ball a lot of the time and, and obviously incredibly intelligent on defense. We don't even have to talk about what the defense is. To, to, to your earlier point there, one of the, the things I've been told that Willie Green believes, one of his philosophies is you can ask a guy to play above his level for a, a short period of time in a one-two games, but he thinks it's unreasonable to ask a guy to play above his level for a long period of time. Like That can just mess a player up when you're expecting them to do more than they're capable of for a long period of time. And I think Jose is an example of that, right? Like, yeah, it's okay. I think it's fine to make him a spot starter here and there if guys are injured, but like, I don't, I don't want to see him as a starter. Like I just love him in that role of your backup point guard who brings this tornado level energy when he comes into the game and is up in people's grills and is adding that element of, a pace and ball movement to the offense. And I'm with you too. I like when the ball's in his hands, um, but I don't want to see that for, you know, 30 minutes a game. Right. I want to see yeah. that for 18 minutes. That's, a game. that's kind of what I was going to say. Like, don't the cap in my mind is like, don't ever, I don't ever want to see him over 30 minutes because that means that for one, you're going to gas him out a little, a little bit more. So a little bit of that energy is going to go away. And also just the the ability of the the other team to attack him and put him in you know non beneficial situations, which you know we're switching defense. There were plenty of times during this stretch run where that switching put us in really really bad spots, and we didn't have a plan. And it's like Jose on a wing, and they just shoot over him or go straight through him. It happened plenty. Like that's an example of what happens if he's going 28 plus minutes a night. Um, so yeah, I think he's special in exactly what he is. I think that's what's so incredible about it. He knows exactly who he is and is more confident than you that he's going to do what he knows how to do well. Yeah. One of the last notes I've got from this game is Anthony Davis was having a, a pretty good game through three quarters. And then in the fourth quarter, there two points 
one of five shooting. Um, I think generally, if you can make AD a jump shooter, that's going to be good outcomes for you. You know, he shot the ball really well in the bubble from a jump shooting perspective and has not had a whole lot of success in his career outside of that stretch when there were no crowds in the arenas or anything like that. Um, so I think they did a good job of that. And yeah, it was, it was, I mean, it was Larry versus AD the entire fourth quarter because Jonas Valanciunas was hurt. He could not play. And I was, I, I can't lie. I was like, when I saw that, I was like, oh, he's going to have to play Larry the entire fourth quarter again. Like, I'm a little worried about that 12 minutes of Larry versus AD. I mean, Larry did great. Like, that was one of the reasons they won the game. AD was quiet offensively in the fourth quarter. All of a sudden, the, so, I mean, the, the majority of his scoring came from runs to the basket, assisted runs to the basket, or being left open at 15 feet and just drilling it. And that's like that kept happening over and over again when Jonas was in against him. And understandably so, like, you know, we've talked about it before. Jonas is a drop guy. I think AD knows what spots he wanted to get to when Jonas on the floor. I don't think AD's like ever been, you know, I don't think anybody's ever talked about him as being the toughest guy or, you know, the guy that wants to go battle in the paint. When you get the Larry matchup, that's what you need to go do. That is the thing. You have to use your size. You have to use your length. And what does he do? He starts settling for threes. You know, he starts taking more contested jumpers. And all of a sudden you're like, yep, that's that's him. That's the guy. That's that's the guy I know and don't love, but used to, admittedly. Can't lie about it, you know. I had, had all his stuff in here. Still have his uh his stupid uh his stupid MVP little media mailer. I still have that from like, what was this? 2018. Yeah. Look at that. Look at that crap right there. Oh, ew. Ew. I don't know why I haven't gotten rid of this or why it's still on my desk, but yeah, it was right there. So yeah, yeah light a fire there. when it gets cold this week and throw it in there. Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Lastly, where do you, what team do you think Kyrie Irving is a part of after the trade deadline? Oh boy. Um, so, Woj comes out with a tweet tonight that says that the Nets are operating as if he is not going to be on the team with them after the deadline. He obviously did not play tonight. So I had in my mind that part of this was like Kyrie doing his typical antics to maybe uh, put the Nets in a hostage situation where like, I'm not going to show up at practice and I'm not going to play until you give me my extension. And he was just like escalating in nuclear fashion, like Kyrie tends to do. But I think Joe Sai, like we've already seen a little bit of this. Joe Sai's pretty tired of this shit, man. Like I think he's just at the point where he's ready to pull the ripcord and go get the best deal that you can for him and get him the hell out of here. Cause like we're talking about a hyper professional, multi billion dollar CEO running the Nets that like cannot fathom dealing with people that are that are this ridiculous i think everybody in the league is tired of this guy so i do think he actually is going to move the deadline like i feel like that's i before the Woj tweet i was like eh, i think he's just kind of extorting the nets to get the extension and nobody's going to want to give him a good deal so they're not gonna so he's gonna stay and maybe they give him the extension or something i feel like he's gone i feel like he's gone for whatever the best offer is um, that offer feels like it's got to have a minimum of two firsts in it. I'm sure, you know, the Lakers are interested. Definitely. I think the teams that are rumored to be interested are the Lakers, the Clippers and the Mavericks. Um, 
Mavericks are interesting. They, you know, how long, like, is Luca ever upset there if you don't find him a running mate? Can you really have Dinwiddie and Kyrie on the same team and have like that the, that much space brain on one roster and one backcourt and think that's a good idea? What do you give up? Like, what is equitable to give up to to bring him in? I, I don't know. I feel like the Lakers are the most motivated to do it. Maybe the Clippers are as motivated as the Lakers, though. This John Wall thing didn't work. Kawhi and PG missed a ton of games again. The Clippers are hanging in there, but what's the upside? What are what are their other abilities to attain players that make them much better? Um, I would I would and- absolutely be pushing for this hard if I was the Clippers. The Clippers are twenty third in offense. Like they, like they're just at this point where it's like, look, just just take the risk if you're them, right? Like they're already yeah. so in on on Kawhi and Paul you're George. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're pocket committed, as you said, like, and you, you need that element of like shot creation scoring in the backcourt. Like you need that juice to your offense, I think. So I would, I would be pushing for that hard if I was the Clippers. Yeah. Like I, you know, they, they clearly don't have many picks or I don't know when the earliest pick they could send would be, but you know, Kennard is a great three point shooter. Somebody's going to, going to value him. Um, you know, I, I think the most interesting guy that isn't PG and Kawhi is probably Trey Mann, uh, and or Terrence Mann. Sorry, not Trey Mann. Um, and I don't think that's I don't think that's a player that they want to move on from. But like, if you believe there's any possibility that Kyrie sticks for any length of time, or if you can't, if you even if you can't work out, like I guess that's really the only thing is like, can you get a commitment from Kyrie that he's going to resign with you? I think if you just give him the max, he's going to be fine. But are, do you want to give him a max? Does anybody want to give him a max anymore? He may take three weeks off at a, on a on a Wednesday because he feels like it. I don't know. Well, what if what if you even have a verbal commitment? Do you even trust him to honor that verbal commitment? <laughs> so how do you send anything? <laughs> like, can you? Yeah. So that's the better question. Yeah. Would you trade a pair of shoes for Kyrie Irving? I don't know. Well, it depends who you are. And uh, if I was in New Orleans Pelicans, certainly no. Yeah, they keep him a million miles away from my jersey. I don't ever want to see him here. But yeah, I so I think I think the Clippers and Lakers, you know, I think we were already joking that if he doesn't get an extension, he walks on to the Lakers next year. Makes tons of sense. They dealt with him before. LeBron can can probably, you know, bring enough ego and stature into the room to calm him to some degree. Then again. He does play with Kevin Durant currently, and nothing's stopping him now. Yeah, I mean, I, I laughed really hard when I saw that leak to Chris Haynes where it was like Irving and his representation aren't even going to entertain any more potential offers from the Nets because they tried to tie one to winning a championship. And, and you know, Kyrie's kind of trying to posture now. Like, it's not even about the money. It's about the respect. It's about the money. Come on now. Like, I don't, I don't know exactly what the Nets propose, but like all the reporting around it is, they just put in some games cla- games played clauses, basically. Like, hey, yeah. man, like if we're going to pay you all this money, can you play X amount of games? And yeah, so it seems reasonable to me. Dude, I just, I don't know what you do here. I don't know who's desperate enough. You're not going to get a top dollar offer. You're not getting a star offer. You're getting some sub level. So you probably get like two firsts and some stuff. 
I feel like that's a low enough cost that those teams would all do it. The Lakers probably have to have a little additional fear because if they thought he was coming in free agency, now all of a sudden the window's open and he might not because somebody else may grab him and say, we'll give you the money. I don't know, man. I, I don't know. He can completely wreck your team or he can bring a shit ton of shot making and creation and, you know, the most sophisticated body control in the league uh, to your team. I, I, it just, he's the most, he's the biggest conundrum of a star player I've ever seen. Yeah, totally. Okay. That's everything I got from this game. It is going to be a busy week. Um, I would be surprised if the Pelicans did not make a move ahead of the trade deadline at this point. So we will talk to you guys again probably a couple times this week. I can love you like that. I can make you my world. Yeah. All right, let's get out. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. Thank you.